0: The Future Proof Podcast
1: from News Talk,
2: proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Hashtag Believe in Science.
0: Hello and welcome to Future Proof on News Talk. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. I'm Jonathan McRae. If you'd like to get in touch with the program, you can email us science at newstalk.com. You can find us on Twitter, we're at Newstalk Science, or you can text us for thirty cent five three one oh six. And as ever, we get to all of those comments in the podcast. Listen and subscribe for free on the News Talk app powered by Go Loud. Coming up on this week's programme, how motorsport research and development is changing everything from medicine to climate change and safety. First, though, it's time to look back at the week's science news and joining me now is Dr. Susan Kelleher from DCU and from NUY Galway, Dr. Jessamine Fairfield. You're both very welcome. Our first story Jess, has to do with the James Webb Telescope. Absolutely nailing it.
3: Yeah, we've just gotten the first image back from the James Webb Space Telescope. Now, this is still part of the sort of alignment and testing process. So we haven't actually started getting scientific data from it yet, but scientists are already just losing it over the quality of this (laughs) test image. Um, The James Webb Space Telescope, of course, launched on Christmas Day just last year, 2021, um, and it's looking for the earliest stars in the universe as well as habitable planets around other stars. Its big difference from space telescopes like Hubble um, that you might have heard about in the past is that it's primarily looking at near-infrared light. Uh, So this is light that would let us look at older stars um, or stars from earlier in the universe uh, because light is redshifted as it travels across very, very long distances. Um, The James Webb Space Telescope also just has a massive mirror um, at six and a half meters across. So this is going to give us just incredible resolution, incredible sensitivity to very small amounts of light. And the calibration process has been ongoing uh, for the last couple of months. Firstly, the meter, the six and a half meter mirror had to travel to space folded up So it had to be unfolded actually out in space which as you can imagine is a very delicate process especially when all of the segments there's 18 of them had to be aligned with nanoscale precision uh, which to me as a nanoscientist is like how would you do that in space i don't envy those engineers Mm. and then the sensors also had to cool down because the james webb space telescope is looking at near infrared light that's basically heat uh, so it couldn't be warm at all or else the sensors would have a huge amount of noise So basically this first test image that's come back is just a single star, nothing remarkable about this star, just sort of imaged um, and chosen for its brightness and position in the sky as a test object. Um, Star looks great, you know, no complaints there, (laughs) but what's really incredible about the image is that the whole background of it is just full of galaxies. Like if you remember the Hubble deep field images where we could see all of these incredibly distant galaxies, like all these different shapes and sizes from very far away in the universe, the James Webb Space Telescope like every image is just going to be that if we want it to be. And if we look for long enough and what's mind blowing about that too, is that when Hubble did those deep field images, that would take, you know, like weeks looking at the same position in the sky, taking a series of images, combining them, um, using image stacking to get a really clear, really crisp image. And the James Webb space telescope is just like, Oh yeah, I can do that in a couple of hours. This is like the, um,
0: it's like the equivalent of um, the guy behind the, 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 Cape holding up the flash and everybody having to stay still in the early 1900s, (laughs) late 1800s to to having a a, a camera phone now.
3: Yeah, no, exactly. It's just it's such a big jump. Um, And if you remember, like Hubble launched in 1990. So it's still going, it's still active, it's still taking useful data. And it's been upgraded a few times. But like, this is, you know, more than 30 years of progress in terms of imaging technology, and you know, how precisely we're able to look at things. And so you know, just seeing this kind of resolution in the test image, yeah. we're so excited to see what's going to come up once the uh, once the James Webb Space Telescope is actually taking data.
0: And Susan, our second story has to do with the myth of the underground mosquito.
2: Yeah. So this is to do with the mosquito that um, developed in, or they believed to develop in, the London Underground in the nineteen fifties, and particularly around um, a very vicious. Um, mosquito that attacked people that were sheltering from the Blitz in World War II Um, it was believed that this underground mosquito evolved independently um, whilst living underneath the ground in London and there were rumours that you'd go down there and you'd have your blood sucked by this horrible mosquito and you've never seen anything like it and it was a bit of a kind of a uh, um urban legend in London at the time and, and now like evolutionary biologists were really interested in this because it was this very short evolution of this mosquito that was very different to the one that lived above ground and it was yeah believed to be an example of where man-made structures influenced evolution and actually this uh, work that came out this week from Princeton and um, researchers have shown they've looked at all the papers in this area and they found out that actually, uh, it's a little bit less exciting than that. And this ah. um, mosquito just evolved from another very similar mosquito in Egypt about two hundred thousand years ago. So And,
0: and so this, um, this mosquito didn't go through hyper evolution from the Blitz to today, preying on London commuters. It actually just came from Egypt pretty much the way it was
2: yeah exactly. And then it didn't only go to London, it went into other places around the world, the u s and Denmark and Germany, the reports of it as well. So that doesn't make it any less vicious. Uh, it's still there. It's just the evolutionary story isn't quite as uh, as meaty as human flesh it would, it would appear.
0: <laughs> um, what is the the story? It, that is obviously that's obviously not a native. that's an invasive species, it sounds like. But are there native um, mosquitoes in the UK?
2: So there's mosquitoes that live above ground in the UK, and they—I mean, I, I imagine they would have come also from abroad. I don't know if mosquitoes would have if evolved independently in the UK, but um, they're—you know—they're—they're they're much less li- liable to attack attack people. They attack uh, birds. They only come out kind of at certain times of the year, etc. So they're a much more timid uh, version than the underground cousins.
0: <laughs> Very good. Uh, our third story, Jess, has to do with sleep.
3: Yeah, researchers at Northwestern University have found effectively that blackout blinds might be worth the hassle. (laughs) So they were doing research on exposure to ambient lighting during nighttime sleep specifically, um, and they found that even exposure to very small amounts of lighting can harm cardiovascular function while you're asleep and increase insulin resistance the next day. So this is meaningful because these are risk factors for things like heart disease and metabolic syndrome. And effectively, the mechanism that they found is that when you're asleep, if there's small amounts of light still around, uh, this can activate the sympathetic nervous system, which is basically during the day what you want. It's the thing that keeps you alert and kind of awake, uh, not so great at night. Um, And one of the things I found really interesting about this research is they were basically saying, you know, if you want to maximize your your cardiovascular health and your overall health, you really need to sleep in in a completely darkened room, like no amount of light to see anything. Uh, in wow. this research study, they also mentioned, though, that 40% of people sleep with the bedside light, bedside light or the TV on, which I was shocked by. I don't sleep with any light on. I find it quite hard, <laughs> but I guess 40% of people uh, do sleep with quite a bit of light on. And obviously, anyone working night shifts and trying to sleep during the day, um, or indeed us here in Ireland, where in the summer the sun might be up at 5 a.m., but you'd have twilight at like 3 or 4 a.m., like it would make a big difference to the quality of your nighttime sleep.
0: Oh, no, for sure. And um, it's kind of funny as a parent, you know, kids want the light on or, you know, some sort of comfort a lot of the time. But now, now it turns out that that's not a great idea. So um, you can tell
3: them that it's bad for them now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, lock them in. Um, so uh, you, you said so little light that you can't see when you're in the room. Like That is pretty dark. I mean, I have to say, yeah. I don't think I, yeah. I, rar- I, I, I rarely it's... sleep in a room that dark.
3: Yeah. Well, and and sometimes you just can't. Right. Uh, But they they did say that basically if you can see well enough to like see objects and make your way around the room, that it's still too light um, because that's still even while you're asleep enough to activate the sympathetic nervous system just a little bit. And then that just really disrupts the quality of sleep. And it basically disrupts the amount of uh, recovery that your body is able to get while you're asleep, which then can lead to these sort of long term health implications. So I know I'll be going out and actually just buying blackout curtains this year.
0: And does that say anything about um, interruptions? Did did they look at, you know, if someone comes like we are, my seven year old comes into the room all the time, turns on the light, one complaint or another and jumps into our bed. Is that also like if we go back to a fully dark room, then is that okay, Or is that am I am I sympathetic then for the rest of the night?
3: Well, definitely your, your sympathetic nervous system has been activated to some extent if you've been woken up. So, I mean, the researchers didn't specifically look at that in this study, but I think we can safely assume that the fewer nighttime interruptions, the better. Uh, and hopefully your seven-year-old will age out of that at some point soon.
0: Mm. Our final story has to do with virtual reality, Susan. And while many have uh, sort of written off this technology as a bit of a fad, uh, Meta putting uh, its its huge influence behind it um, gives it some sort of hope. Researchers are now looking at ways of making virtual reality even more real. Can you tell us about chemical haptics, please?
2: Yeah. This is um, down to how you might feel if you're in the virtual reality in terms of your sensations that you feel. So, chemical haptics is all about touch and how you feel something on your skin, um, and haptics in general is that. But this is chemical haptics where they're looking at depositing chemicals down onto the skin to get a sensation. So, if you think about putting VIX vapor rub or deep heat onto your skin, you can feel heat or you can feel cold depending on what the chemical is. So, that's a chemical um, that is doing that job. And what these guys have done in the University of Chicago is they've made like a silicone cast that has channels in it that liquids flow through which then gets in, in touch with the which runs over your skin to, to deposit chemicals onto the skin and they did this with a number of different chemicals to provide different sensations to the skin so they use menthol for cold they use capsicum for for um, heat etc and they've done this in, um, in tandem with looking at VR um, scenes so for example they have a headset that when um you open the door into a cold wintry wilderness you have a little bit of the menthol on your cheek and then you feel like you could very well be there um and they've done the same for you know you walk into somewhere very very hot and you get um the capsaicin on your skin and you feel like you're you're heating up then so it's a nice um study i i'm interested in how long things stay um, on the skin yeah. you know they talk about this silicone cast as being something that can deliver lots of different things to the skin but then how long do things stay around you know the dp stays on the skin for a long time so you know perhaps they won't be um it won't be as varied as they might like to think in reality but it's certainly an interesting take on what was the the work that's um got the nobel prize for medicine um last year you know this is it's in this area of haptics and, touch and how our body responds to different types of stimuli so an interesting one to watch
0: Yeah, I mean, what I think would be more interesting is if they could find some way of um, activating those neurons in a way that didn't involve chemicals, because then, you know, then they could have it turn on and off. But obviously, if you if you stick, you know, chili peppers in your eyes, you know that once the chili peppers go away, you still have chili peppers in your eyes. And so um, a way of, of doing that without using chemicals that, as you say, would stick around for a while might be a little bit more safe.
2: I mean, there's nothing super unsafe about these chemicals. They're all pretty, you know, innocuous chemicals. Like I said, they're in a lot of products already. But you're dead right. I think, you know, it's just another way. I think it's a proof of concept. Aside from the normal haptics, this is another way that you can get a response from the skin. And obviously, it's something they've pursued from, you know, perhaps an interesting artistic point of view as well.
0: No, absolutely. And, you know, people would probably knock that and say, what's the point of that? But I do think, you know, using creative and innovative ways to to create uh, new experiences, that's always been of interest to me. And I, I think um, while this might be a bit of a gimmicky thing, who knows where it might lead in the future. So interesting story. Uh, Dr. Susan Kelleher from DCU and from NUI Galway, Dr. Jessamine Fairfield, thanks very much for joining us. Now, when you think of motorsport, your mind might think of the speed, or the danger, or the excitement, or perhaps if you're like me, the noise and the mind-boggling repetitiveness of the thing. But it might surprise you to find out that the motorsport industry and its various R&D departments have contributed to a wide range of applications beyond the sport, from climate change solutions to help in the fight against COVID. So says Dr. Kit Chapman, an award-winning science journalist and author of Racing Green, How Motorsport Science Can Save the World. Um, Welcome to the program Uh, again, Kit. It's always good to have you on. I feel like motorsport Books are always written by. It's kind of like horse racing. You're either really into it or you just wouldn't make a book about this at all. I, I presume you
1: are a motorsports nut. Is that right? <laughs> I am a little bit of a petrol head. Uh, so I grew up watching Nigel Mansell, Alan Prost and Ayrton Senna, and so I've been interested in motorsport since I was a child. But actually, I was um, I was working out in the gym one day and I couldn't get there. And a, a friend said, "Why don't you use my friend's gym?" Um, and I went along to the house. And on the front drive was this supercar and also a Formula One driver. David Brabham was was next to the car. So it turned out the friend was a Le Mans driver. And suddenly I realised there's a real link there between science and, and cars. I started talking to him. He showed me his car collection. And I realised that there was a book here that, that, of a story that hadn't been told.
0: So um, it might be surprising to to you know to read the title of Racing Green. You're obviously implying that these um, cars can be good for the planet. Uh, talk to me a little bit about that. What sort of um, things are you talking about?
1: Well, when a cars are going around the track, they're really the fastest R&D lab in the world. And there are all kinds of things that spin out from that. You've got improvements to engines. We're already racing with electric engines, for example, that goes directly into electric cars. But it's much more than that. So aerodynamics from a Formula One car are used in supermarket freezers. If you think about those open freezers where you reach in and take out the items, quite often the shelves will have blades on them designed by Formula 1 teams including Williams who are currently racing at the moment. And those blades help curl in the air and prevent it spilling out of the supermarket freezer. And that means not only are your feet kept warm, but also that reduces the amount of energy those freezers use because they don't have to cool the air and it reduces the CO2 footprint. And when if you think about how many supermarkets there are in the world, that is going to really contribute a lot to saving the environment.
0: Are you saying it's it's not unlike the the space industry in that um, you know the attempts to improve our exploration as we travel across the cosmos also have sort of side effect benefits of of, of basically new technologies, new ideas, and so on.
1: Absolutely. There are some cases where Formula One teams have been directly involved. So particularly in healthcare, they're often approached by hospitals who say, can we use your expertise to help solve a problem? Uh, This happened during the COVID pandemic, but it's also happened in in the past. Great Ormond Street Hospital in London actually approached Ferrari and said, we're interested in in cutting down the amount of errors that happen when we transfer a patient from the operating theatre to the wards. Can we copy how you do a pit change? And so the Ferrari team showed them how they do the pit changes. And pit changes are incredible. I mean, if you've ever seen them, the teams can swap out four tires in 1.82 seconds. Um, it's phenomenal. And they use the coordination techniques that Formula One teams use now in surgery for pediatric patients in hospitals to make sure that errors don't happen. So it's not just these spin-off benefits. There can be some direct benefits as well
0: how um how does something like that translate because I, I love hearing those stories of one industry or one uh, one world influencing another but like how is changing the cars in a formula 1 car comparable to removing a child from one ward and putting it in another
1: well the big thing they did with uh, with that particular case is if you imagine the the child in the operating theater or on, on on the bed that's your car coming in Everyone has a very specific job to do. Previously, people were doing multiple tasks. And when you've got one task and you're doing one decision-making process, that makes things much easier. The other thing they introduced was the concept of the lollipop man. So people have probably seen in pit stops, there's someone with basically a stick in front of the driver telling him when to go. They started using that in, uh, in operating theaters, someone who was overall in charge uh, with a checklist basically to make sure everything had happened properly. And they managed to slash the number of errors that were happening in hospitals. Oh, that's really cool. You said something about
0: um, the COVID pandemic. Um, I presume this is something to do with defibrillators or is it to do with distribution systems
1: or or, or what was it? Well, there was a little bit of a mixture. So right at the start of the pandemic, when it hit hit Europe in March 2020, uh, UCL, University College London, were invited by the UK government to work on their ventilator challenge. The idea that we were very short of ventilators, we needed about 10,000 of them. And some teams actually did work on the ventilator challenge. But the UCL team came back and thought, actually, this isn't great because if a patient's on a ventilator, then obviously they need to be fed properly. They need to be looked after by a nurse constantly. It's an incredibly complicated piece of machinery. You've got a tube stuck down your throat. It takes up a hospital bed. So they started looking for a sort of intermediary solution. And they'd spoken to colleagues in China and Italy, and they knew about something called a CPAP machine, which is a very simple piece of equipment that gives a bit of, so it's positive airway pressure, basically. It just helps you breathe a little bit. And so they contacted the team that provides uh, engines for Formula One, Mercedes, AMG, high-performance powertrains. And they said, can you help us build these, these very simple valves? And Mercedes came back and said, do not hesitate to call upon the full might of what we can do. Within 26 hours, they had already built a prototype. They actually sent their engineers down there. The engineers didn't even have a change of clothes when they arrived. They had to buy these garish pink shirts. <laughs> within three days, they had the devices on wards being tested. Within 12 days, they had two different d- devices approved by the, um, the the regulatory agency in the UK for safe use in patients. One was specifically for COVID. And within 30 days, they had actually built 10,000 of these machines. They had gone from never building a medical device, never even seeing one, to building 10,000 of them at medical grade in under a month.
0: Oh my God, I'm really surprised I haven't heard that story.
1: That's amazing. It's called the the UCL Ventura um, project. And and that happened. We also had Project Pitlane, which involved many of the teams trying to build ventilators. McLaren were heavily involved in one of the big consortiums. They were actually building parts for them. And they produced a, a staggering number of parts. Not a single one had a floor. They were also coordinating logistics because they're used to getting logistics from different places. Over in NASCAR, um, they were actually designing uh, basically heads, which sounds kind of strange. They were 3D printing heads, and they were actually using those to test masks to see what would be effective for preventing COVID particles getting in. So motorsport was contributing in a lot of different ways right at the start of the pandemic.
0: I suppose all the industries were kind of looking in upon themselves and thinking, you know, is there anything we can do? And, of course, a whole team of engineers and designers at, at Formula One teams across the world probably would be better placed than most. When it comes to the engines themselves, obviously, we've seen a big change. The the um, Formula E, isn't that what it's called? The the electronic version right, of, yeah. of, of Formula One uh, has 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 really rocketed. Um are we seeing huge changes to combustion engines um,
1: that are, that isn't necessarily electric only through Formula One inventiveness? We are. We are. So you're, you're right that we've got Formula E, which is looking at electric vehicles, and and now Extreme E as well, which you are testing. It's almost like a rally circuit that's done in the extreme environments around the world. So you've got the Amazon jungle, you've got the deserts, you've got the you they tried they to do it in Greenland as well with glaciers to really show that electric can go anywhere. But Formula One needs to move away from the internal combustion engine. It's already reached what's called um, 50% thermal efficiency, which means that its engines are 50% efficient. That's astonishing. The average road car is about 30%. And that's through just smart engineering design choices. That was Mercedes again. But in the future, they're already looking at the alternatives. So they've started using biofuels this season. They're now using what's called E10 fuel, which has 10% biofuel ethanol. But they're looking at hydrogen as well. We're going to see that in um, Le Mans in the next two years. There'll be hydrogen-powered cars. And also we're looking at uh, synthetic fuels as well, actually using electrolyzers to break down water. Uh, hopefully those electrolyzers are sort of powered by sustainable energy. And then you move that in there, and through a series of processes, combining it with carbon monoxide, you eventually can actually produce synthetic hydrocarbons. And that means you're producing, you are actually making oil through chemistry. So we're looking at a lot of different alternatives. We don't know which one it's going to be in the future, but motorsport is definitely leading the way. Is, is, it,
0: is it because of just the bad taste in people's mouths when you, you know cars are bad enough, but Formula One, you're not even going anywhere. You're just going round in a circle and using up an enormous amount of fuel with, with the environmental crisis that we have around us. Is this sort of greenwashing by the, the Formula One teams, do you think?
1: I think there certainly is an aspect of that. I don't think that if there wasn't the climate crisis, I don't think anyone would be moving. But there is a real need and a real desire to actually push forward. You see that with McLaren, for example. So the current regulations allow you to actually make cars in part, or in fact, all the cars if you really wanted to, out of things like wood and bamboo and hemp. That's actually written into the regulations. Now, for the past two seasons, McLaren have been looking at that. They're already building the driver's seats out of an alternative uh, compound to carbon fiber that is made from hemp. It's flax. So we're actually using sort of plant-based materials. And there's no reason that we couldn't extend that to the body of the car. Already, we've seen Porsche do exactly that. So there is a real desire not only to... Yeah, to an extent, there is a certain amount of greenwashing. It can't be denied. But there is this this constant desire by engineers to be the best, to be the most inventive, and that benefits us as a whole. Um, what are the
0: downsides of having a, a car traveling at two hundred kilometers an hour made of bamboo and
1: fabric? <laughs> well, the big the big downside is actually carbon fiber. When that when that hits, it can break and it can splinter and it causes uh, basically sharp, sharp shards. You don't get that with flax. Um, so the, in terms of what we're actually doing, we're you do with it with,
0: with bamboo, though, right? I mean, I think uh, uh, well, the Viet, the Viet Khan your, could tell you all about that.
1: Bamboo has actually been one of the, the materials that's been listed. Uh, I don't think that's actually been used in the Formula One car yet. They're right. currently mainly doing it with flax. Um, there is no reason that they couldn't start looking at it in the future. But I think the next big material is going to be graphene, which is, uh, for those people who don't know, it's, it's an incredibly astonishing material It is a single atom thin, basically, and it is a sheet of chicken wire, uh, a carbon-made sheet of chicken wire. And so that has all the properties you would associate with chicken wire in that it's bendable, it's flexible, you can move it around, you can shape it. um, But of course, you can't punch through it. It's incredibly strong as well. And graphene is going to be the next super material. It, It will outshadow plastics. If you think about plastics being carbon in a straight line, this is carbon in a sheet. And so it, you and I, we can't imagine what graphene is going to t- where graphene is going to take us, but it's almost certain that it's going to be seen in sport first.
0: Uh, is it most likely to be an additive um, to, to materials, or um, are we likely to see this in in batteries? What is the what, is, what are the applications of graphene in, um, in
1: motorsports? The short, the short answer is everywhere. So it's fantastically electrically and thermically conductive. People are looking at it in lubricants, adding it to the coolant systems, basically, and mm-hmm. making things a bit cooler. You could use circuits and make the circuits much more efficient electronically. And Formula One is all about the electrics. They actually have about 300 sensors on cars, um, transmitting just during the race 1.0 gigabytes of data over to the team 500 gigabytes during the course of a race weekend actually gets transferred to 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 show what the car is doing i mean it's astonishing and we're going to see that we could see it potentially in the bodywork. we're already seeing graphene being used in crash helmets because it's incredibly strong you can protect someone's head and of course it's quite lightweight as well um so the the answer is it could be literally the, the entire car made of graphene in the future
0: have we reached um, peak aerodynamics? Uh, you, you know, you're talking about um, F, F1 F cars spilling out into other um, industries. I mean, obviously, uh, the cars that we buy and drive on our roads today have benefited from some of these innovations. But like, uh, the, you know, the Ford Focus is not really going to get any more aerodynamic thanks to Formula One, is it?
1: No, no. Realistically, the Ford Focus is probably uh, where we're at in terms of sort of usual road cars, things like that. Um, Where we're seeing aerodynamic benefits is actually much bigger. So we use in Formula One something called CFD, which is Computational Fluid Dynamics. And that is basically essentially computer modelling of where airflow goes. Think about wind tunnels. We can do that on a computer. And that means that you don't have to fit the thing in the wind tunnel. You can make your scale anything. And so they're now using it on skyscrapers to control the flow of wind around a skyscraper and prevent it brushing down and washing people off their feet during high winds, things like that. Um, So they're building baffles into the skyscrapers. And they're building it in the way that we vent and ventilate buildings. And that means that we can keep the building at the right temperature. There's no sudden rush of cold or sudden rush of warm. And that means that we don't have to use air conditioning as much which again cuts down on our our co2 footprint and we're already seeing that apple's headquarters in cupertino california they actually modeled the entire forest around their giant headquarters to basically control airflow and work out what the optimum design of the base would be
0: That's very smug, isn't it? Um, <laughs> typically, Apple. Um, speaking of batteries, where are we with that? It seems like this is the big thing that's holding back, obviously, people buying them uh, on the in the car market, but also um, it's it's limiting the potential of uh, other types of transport beyond you know small cars, medium sized dis- distances. In terms of 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 batteries, are we at the at the cusp of something transformative? Do you think?
1: There are several different answers to that, depending on on how you approach the question. So what we're doing is increasing power density in Formula One. That's how much warmth in one go you can provide from a battery. But in Formula E, for example, we mentioned that sort of in passing. If you think about to the first season of Formula E, um, which most people probably didn't even notice, it wasn't on their radar. It's only been sort of eight, nine years since this sport really emerged. At that time, the drivers would literally have to stop halfway through the race and get into another car because their batteries were dead. <laughs> these days, we're completing the entire race. In fact, the idea of having a sort of a timed race is going to vanish and they're actually going to do it on a number of laps because there's no argument against it anymore. The amount of voltage we've got in the batteries now has gone up. We've got 900-volt batteries. And this is because, because there's a demand for it, people are actually building infrastructure around these batteries. So the technologies are definitely being improved. They're definitely pushing the the limits. The big question is, what are we going to do in the future? Because lithium, although it's the 33rd most abundant element in the world, we're going to run out of it if we use it in everything. And so one thing we're looking at is called sodium ion batteries. We're also looking at the different materials that we put into batteries, working out optimum configurations. And again, I mentioned Extreme E. We're looking at where we can take these batteries. So the fact that we can actually now power... An entire race event in the middle of the desert, or on a glacier, or in the middle of the Amazon, demonstrates that the idea of batteries and range just doesn't apply anymore. We've gone past that.
0: Is there a huge difference between electric cars and um, traditional Formula One cars in terms of speed? Like, uh, do they do, has have electric cars outpaced the Formula One cars yet, or, or are they better at torque or whatever the geeky term is?
1: It's, it's quite funny how, how it actually works, because in terms of pace, probably a Formula One car has got a little bit more pace, but in terms of acceleration, going from 0 to 60, things like that, very, very similar. In terms of top speed, you're looking at about 190 miles an hour for a Formula E car. Oh. In terms of horsepower, roughly the same. And this goes back to the technologies right at the start of the automotive industry. So most people don't realize it, but the first ever purpose-built race car the first car built to go fast was electric. What? Uh, it was called Le Jamais Contente. Um, it was built by a, a that's the never satisfied. Um, and it was actually, it wasn't about trying to break the land speed record. That was an insult towards his mother-in-law. It was a, a Belgian guy called Camille Jenatzy, And he was the first guy to go over 100 kilometers an hour. And it was an electric car. So we're actually going full circle. This isn't something that's <laughs> new. It's basically returning to the roots.
0: Well, it's absolutely fascinating. And one of the things about Kit's books, if you've, uh, if you've read uh, any of his previous ones, is that there's always these great uh, characters in them. Uh, and this is very much the case in Racing Green. Um, How Motorsport Science Can Save the World, I think is a slightly over-optimistic title, but you have to have a good title for a book and it's a catchy title nonetheless. I don't know if it's going to be saved by motorsport, but it's a bloody good read anyway. Um, Dr. Kit, Kit Chapman, thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me. If you haven't
0: read um, Kit Chapman's Super Heavy, it's really interesting. It's about the search for elements that are, you know, the sort of missing next elements on the periodic table. It's it's really, really a great read and, and uh, filled with lots of fascinating facts that I did not know about heavy elements. Um, all right. Uh, time to look back at some of your comments from last week's podcast uh, producer, Aidan McCalmie. Hayden McCalvey joins me. I've got a rotten cold slash COVID. Has anyone going to ever normally just have a cold now without fearing that it's COVID? I feel like no, no, well, I,
4: I, to, I, I thought I had COVID 20 times over the course of the pandemic. I still haven't had it. So every time that must have been a cold.
0: <laughs> yeah, really? Yeah. Like I just, How are you I getting a cold if you're not getting COVID?
4: I don't know. I don't know. Well, the other thing is, I suppose um, I'm... Some people would accuse me of being a hypochondriac. I don't think I am, but I'm very conscious of my own health. So I think if you think it enough, a lot of the times you can make you, yourself You can absolutely feel. get
0: a nocebo. I mean, certainly there was loads yeah. of times where, you know, during the peak freak out phase, I was like, I, I, I just feel, I feel a breath, And then it's like, oh no, the door's open. The door's open. It's just you feel cold because the door's open. Close the door. <laughs> like I, think, yeah. you know, I was freaking out and, you know, putting the kids in isolation chambers and stuff, so... Was that uh, yeah. was
4: that due to COVID or you just wanted a bit of time away from them?
0: Uh, a little bit from column A, <laughs> a little bit from column B. Okay, let's. Um, how are you doing? You're, you're I'm pretty fit good. and healthy, yeah, good.
4: Yeah, feeling good. Yeah. How about you? <laughs> you're,
0: you're give me feet. something to work with. You know, how are you? <laughs> yeah, I'm feeling good. What a conversationalist you are. Like, how am I supposed to riff off that? It's like a glass wall. <laughs> Sorry, I'm give I'm just me have some to detail. Up. <laughs> how? <laughs> What do you mean waking up? It's like midday or something. <laughs> yes,
4: well, you know, I have to get my rest before I go to this uh, Ireland match.
0: Oh, you going to the Ireland
4: game? Yeah, I'm going to the Ireland game, so good. I'm very excited. No, I'm very good. Um, my brother is back for Paddy's Day. Uh, it's lovely to see all. The, it was lovely Does to see he all the people like you. at the parade. He doesn't really look like me. No, uh, I would say he's the better-looking brother.
0: Um, Not possible. Not possible. Very possible.
4: <laughs> thank, thank, thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, but no, it was lovely. I don't know if you saw any of the uh, coverage or if you were at the parade in Dublin. But I was, I, I was out at it. Um, my brother-in-law has an office that overlooks the parade route, and uh-huh. it was just—it's the most I've ever enjoyed a Paddy's Day parade. I used to not kind of take much of it, but it was so just nice a, to a see A large panel around. of
0: glass separates you from what's going on. Like, <laughs> <laughs> that, basically, you've watched it on TV. Well, well done you.
4: Yeah, no, no, it was—it was lovely to see all the people on the street and actually like out and about again. I, I
0: enjoyed mm. that. Indeed. Was, no, see, you, see, I had something there. We could talk yeah um, yeah. conversation 101 all right let's look at text from last week we had this really interesting guy called um martin vikelski who is basically trying to use animals as sort of disaster prediction devices and he like he straps them up with like little sensors that you know that check which way they move or if they move very quickly that's you know he's not like making them into like animal cyborgs or anything it's all very ethical and, and safe uh, but he, it turns out that animals uh, really know, sometimes up to 12 hours, well before any scientific um, registering on our puny machines, animals go, something's not right. I'm going to bang my head against this stable door. Um, so amazing that they can sense that something's wrong. The reaction to that, I suppose, would, would be sort of the counterbalance to the intelligence, wouldn't it? <laughs> Just bang. Um so uh, he, uh, when well, someone texted in saying, regarding animals and predicting earthquakes, the work of biologist Rupert Sheldrake might be relevant. He uses his theory of morphic fields to explain how dogs anticipate the remote returning of their owners. That's from Paddy. Uh, have you ever heard of this, morphic fields?
4: Uh, I haven't. So I, looked, I did look up Rupert Sheldrake and morphic fields, and the very first headline I got was, Scientific heretic, Rupert Sheldrake on Morphic Fields. Aww. Psychic dogs and other mysteries. Um, so that doesn't bode too well. Well, I mean, like, he... you know,
0: don't read, re- believe everything you, you read on no, the internet, but...
4: Absolutely, absolutely. It wasn't Scientific American, which I believe is relatively reputable. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Mm. But uh, oh, do you know what? Because
0: just... I loved the sound of Morphic Fields, but as soon as I heard the words Morphic Fields, I thought... <laughs> ding, 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 ding yeah Um, and i suppose that is you know that's testament to having done this program for 12 years that the detector my detector for oncoming bullshit is similar (laughs) to a dog's detector for oncoming disasters
4: yeah it reminds me actually of early in my days working on the show i wanted to do a special on people who could i think there were like change computer systems with their minds and i kept going on going no no there's been a study and blah 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 and um you kind of went along, you kind of humored me for a while, but eventually you're like, no, this is bullshit. <laughs> We're not doing
0: this. <laughs> so, I mean, uh, it, it's. It, it, I'm just having a look here. I don't want to, like, you know, I was a bit dismissive there. You just found one internet thing. So. Um, yeah, no, that
4: doesn't That his, doesn't mean necessarily anything. Oh, his
0: TED Talks have been banned. Wow. He's one of the few people. Um, his mission is scientific, but he. Um, I mean, I'm really, I'm really judging the man as quickly as I can here. That's not the best way to do things. Is. Do you know what? I have a no. reread of Morphic Fields, and I'm going to withdraw my cynicism until later. But my sensor was flashing red there for a second, just in case you were wondering. Yeah. I felt probably, probably less to this rather than more to this. Um, Future Proof should do a segment on some people's ability to divine water and others to trace underground electric cables. Says somebody. The divination of water is a funny one, isn't it? I don't think there's any scientific whatsoeverness about that. I don't think anyone has done that. But electric fields, I mean, we know that a- animals, all sorts of animals, um, can detect magnetic fields. Um, it would be unsurprising to me to realize that electric fields also um, were something that we could be sensitive to. So I'm I'm more open to that because there's a scientific mechanism to it. Um, yeah, well, one, one thing that Martin,
4: that, Martin, that Martin said was really interesting, which I didn't know before. The reason that they that the animals knew twelve hours in advance of the earthquake was that he said, "Well, his it was his his theory. He correct, hadn't correct. proven it yet. Was that the their the, the kind of hairs bit. on their body would kind of go up and they'd feel that? But like yeah. so we have a lot of hairs as well, so and and there's also that have, kind of."
0: Way more hairs than I, have.
4: <laughs> I I have loads of hairs. I should be able to t- detect all sorts of disasters. Yeah. But like I wouldn't just, I would,
0: just, like have you ever been in a trampoline?
4: Yes. And have ha, I ever been on a trampoline? Like, of course I have. Well, I
0: don't know. you may have had a you know, an underprivileged childhood. Um, <laughs> so when you're on a trampoline, like do you constantly get shocks? Uh and now that I think of it Yeah, the odd time actually, yeah, yeah now that I
4: think of it, yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. You're quite conductive as a as a as a as producers go. You're one of the more conductive ones.
4: Yeah, I had that on my CV so I got the job.
0: <laughs> we were also talking about endurance. This amazing find that um, the Shackleton's endurance was found at the bottom of the ocean in pristine condition. Amazing photographs from it. Um, Jim says, "Don't forget to mention our own Tom Crean, who was on the lifeboat to South Georgia and who spent more time in Antarctica than any other man up to that point." How could we forget Tom Crean, Jim?
4: Sure, Shackleton was our own as well. He was born in
0: Kildare. Um, yeah, yeah, he's Kildanair. a little West now. He was he, born he in Kildare. Born. <laughs> and he, like, I think he left to age yeah. 10. And I he, he think he, didn't he say something like, just because you're, you're born in a stable doesn't make you a horse.
4: <laughs> well, no, nice. I think, that, hang on. I think that was Wellington. <laughs> I don't think that was Shackleton, in Oh, because really? Of, the Duke of, Duke of Wellington. Am
0: I misappropriating that I, I won't that have one?
4: you... Yeah, I won't have you bad, Mayor Shackleton. Shackleton, uh, Shackleton's Mills is in Lucan, where I'm from, so we're very uh, attached to Shackleton.
0: You're shackled to Shackleton, indeed. Uh, <laughs> right? Okay. All right. I'll, I'll, I'll re- I'm making lots of, I'm jumping to th- all sorts of conclusions here on this podcast, which we we know we shouldn't do. So I'll retract that one as well. I thought he had <laughs> sort of dismissed Ireland as a um, as somewhere he did not feel a great uh, affinity to.
4: I mean, he very well may have, but yeah. I'm pretty sure that quote is Wellington. Right, okay. I hope I don't I will, look it up now. Awesome.
0: <laughs> go, go, go. That. I've got lots of work to do after this podcast. Um, <laughs> and then uh, and then, it's some nice people saying some nice things about Future proof, which we don't. We just acknowledge them, but not be all sort of self-congratulatory about it. But thank you very much to Practical Capital and Co-ops and Alan Costello, who who are sharing the, their love for the programme. If you would like to, to comment on anything, you can email us, talk.com. If you have a good grasp of morphic fields and would like to argue it, scientific case, love to hear that. Um, you can hit me over the head with it. Um, and also, if you know anything about Shackleton's um, love or dislike for his native Ireland, um, wouldn't mind a bit of facts on that, please. Save me doing the homework. That's it from this week's Future Proof podcast. Thanks to Aiden McCalvey, producer, Simon Keane, uh, Steve Daunt, and Jojo Cordozo, who does an excellent job on sound. We'll be back on Tuesday with more Future Proof in your podcast feed. Thank you, Aiden. In the meantime, stay curious.